Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. One of my jobs as Dean of Beeson is to raise money and ask faithful Christians to give to student scholarships so that more men and women will be able to prepare for ministry without debt. As you think about where to make your year-end gifts, would you please consider making a gift to student scholarships at Beeson? There are other ways, of course, to support us in our work. Most importantly of all, you can pray for us and our students. But our students tell me frequently that they need more support. So as Christmas approaches, let me ask you to consider making a gift to the wonderful gospel ministers in training here at Beeson. This is a very special way to serve the church that the Christ child came to redeem. Today on the show, we have a guest who is with us to deliver our annual Reformation Heritage Lectures. He is a world-renowned scholar who comes from Emory University, and Kristen is looking forward to introducing him to us. Yes, hello everyone. Today on the show we have Dr. Ian McFarland. He is the Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Theology at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. McFarland, to the Beeson Podcast. It's great to be here. We always like to begin by asking our guests to share a little bit about um, themselves. And so I wonder if you can begin by uh, telling us about yourself, your upbringing, and your faith journey. Uh, well, my dad actually attended seminary. Both my parents were raised Congregationalists, in New England Congregationalists. I grew up in Connecticut. Um, my dad actually went to Hartford Seminary uh, in the early 60s for a short time um, uh, and uh, was discerning, and that was not the, – the discernment went in a different direction. We attended a local congregational church in my hometown when I was very small. I don't really remember it very well. I remember the church because it was there the whole time I grew up. But um, we stopped going there uh, because um, – this is one of the reasons why I think I'm glad to be in Episcopal tradition. The um, the son of the minister at the time burned his draft card, which my parents thought was okay, but the rest of the congregation basically hustled the minister out of town because of it, and they were disgusted. So they started going to the Hartford Monthly Meeting, Quaker congregation, and I was I went attended that till I was about in middle school, I think, and then my parents sort of stopped going altogether. And my parents were extremely interested in left wing causes and really. Pretty much, I mean, they'd always been liberal, became much more left-wing as uh, through high school, and I was fine with that. Um, I was pretty much an atheist when I got to college. But then I became involved in the anti-nuclear movement in the early 80s, and we were, my group was contemplating civil disobedience, and my dad said, well, if you're going to do that, you should read some people. So he said, you should read some, you should read some Thoreau, and you should read Gandhi. And he said, you should also read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I'd never heard of. And my dad still had all the seminary books at home. And, and, he was, and he was never dismissed, even when he was in his uh, hard communist anarchist phase, he was never dismissive of religion as such, although he didn't practice. So I read The Cost of Discipleship, in old translation, um, and as I was reading it, I, had, I mean, I had nothing. I was reading this stuff because of other reasons. But I thought, as I was reading it, I thought, you know, Bonhoeffer said, Jesus calls people. I said, shoot, I think Jesus is calling me. <laughs> um, so I, uh, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. I ended up, uh, I had a particular sense of denominational difference, but uh, there was a Lutheran church uh, not too far from my college campus. Um, and I went there and joined, was baptized. And it ended up being a good fit. I uh, 
finished out school. I had a traveling fellowship, but I was planning to go to seminary, which I did do, uh, beginning in 1986 at Union Seminary in New York. I was pretty convinced I wanted to be a parish pastor. I had a great time at seminary. And then because I'm a Lutheran and I went to a non-Lutheran seminary, I had to do a Lutheran year, which I did at the Lutheran Seminary in Chicago, and also do an internship, which actually came before that year. And the internship was terrific. It was a small congregation in eastern Iowa. I had a wonderful time. But it was interesting. I had probably the best internship of anybody in my cluster. The other men and women who were involved that year had some very strange supervisors. <laughs> the Lutheran pattern is you do two years of your MDiv, a year of internship, and then finish your MDiv up. At least that's the classic pattern. It's becoming difficult to manage now. They were all, even after their not-so-great internships, back at campus the next year, we were all back. I was doing it at THM. They were in their MDiv, but we were all in the same you know, area. And they were like, I can hardly wait to get back in the parish, whereas I was thinking I had really missed the school part. <laughs> so I began to have some discernment and um, talk with my bishop and uh, applied to graduate programs, and that's where I've ended up. Well, of course, Dr. McFarland, we invited you to come and give our Reformation lectures because of the scholarship that we appreciate that you've done mm -hmm. as a Lutheran theologian. Uh, so help our listeners out a little bit. I mean, we're not asking you to brag about yourself, but we kind of like to brag on you and tell them a little bit about where you've been and what your academic career has looked like. Could you tell us in you know, just a couple of minutes what your academic career has looked like and then spend a minute or so telling us about what Candler School of Theology and Emory University are like? Sure. Well, my first job when I finished my PhD was a few years later. I did some other non theological things in between, like uh, delivering broken musical instruments to high schools, or delivering them to my repair shop and then back to high schools, uh, was at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, which was a wonderful, uh, I was there for seven years, uh, and uh, it was a wonderful place to start my career. I had a very, was a faculty of 15 in the Divinity, uh, at that time it was just called the Divinity Faculty, it's now encompassed other, uh, faculty encompasses other um, disciplines as well. I had wonderful colleagues who were very supportive. So as a first job, it was terrific. I did get, at, in 2005, I moved to Emory University. Um, uh, it, was a, it was the idea of going, even though we were having a great time in Scotland, the idea of moving back to the U.S. where our families were was somewhat attractive. Atlanta was a good place for my spouse for a variety of reasons. And went to Emory and was there for 10 years. And then uh, I was asked, uh, as many people were, uh, to, to uh, apply for the Regis Professor of Divinity at Cambridge after David Ford, as David Ford was retiring. I applied not thinking as a Lutheran and an American, um, neither of which had are hist has been historical holders of that chair that I had much of a chance, but I did, in fact, divine providence, I guess, must be. <laughs> I was awarded the job. And so my family and I moved there, um, and it was a wonderful five years we spent in Cambridge. But then Emory lured me back. And um, that was partly for family reasons, but also um, I did miss in Cambridge training ministers. I mean, there were uh, the, the way the British system works. There are theological colleges affiliated with the university, and those students attend lectures. But all they do is attend lectures. Their supervision and the hands-on stuff is all done in their colleges. So I really missed the hands-on formation of uh, of students who are planning to go and do ministry versus undergraduates who are taking the degree for a variety of reasons. And it, particularly in terms of what is nice about Candler and Emory, one thing I've always appreciated about Candler is we have a very uh, well-established, we call it a contextual education program, um, field ed. But it's a two-year program that all students do. And in the first year, 
every faculty member is part of Con Ed. That is, you are part of a cluster of students who are at a particular ministry site. The first year, first, the way Con Ed works is the first year is a clinical setting, so prisons, nursing homes, homeless shelters, and so forth. The second year is an ecclesial setting with the supervisor there, the person who's, who's uh, working on them. And you are working with the students through a curriculum that you co-design with readings that you and the supervisor choose. Exploring with them what it means to do ministry in this setting and more broadly questions about what it means to do Christian ministry in whatever in the context we are in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that that isn't something that's shuttled off onto practical faculty or anything, but you know, everybody from the most senior person uh, on the faculty to the person who was, who was just out of PhD hired last week does that. That commitment to not simply teaching in your own area, which obviously is what you're hired for, to be sure, but to um, to recognize that we re- that whatever we're teaching, it is all about forming students to be able to be witnesses to God's love in particular places that are not the seminary. I think communicates something powerfully to students about what the seminary's mission, how the seminary conceives its mission. Uh, and that's been a powerful attraction for me when I was at Canada to begin with and coming back, I've appreciated it even more. As Doug has already said, you're here delivering our Reformation Heritage Lectures. And the theme of your lectures is Not by Bread Alone, Justification and the Christian Hope. Can you give our listeners an overview of the content of your lectures, or uh, perhaps you can uh, tell us about the main theme that you wish your hearers uh, take away from your two lectures? Yeah, um, what I'm what I'm addressing in the lecture is um, a difficulty that churches in the Reformation tradition, particularly my own Lutheran tradition, have is justification by faith alone. Um, uh, can be, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, famously noted, uh, misunderstood to mean a kind of, uh, well, to mean cheap grace, a, uh, a purely individual relationship between God and me that is essentially, as it were, paid ahead of time and doesn't really require much on my part, and in which the content of Christian hope and Christian expectation is in completely postponed to some otherworldly heavenly realm. So there's a, it's highly individualistic and it's highly ahistorical. And I want to suggest that there are different ways of looking at, at how that might be done. And and the, the quote from, well, Deuteronomy that Jesus then uses in the temptation narratives is, for me, a decisive clue about the relationship between future hope, which is otherworldly at one level, but the fact that it's not utterly disconnected from the present. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. First thing to recognize is that isn't a saying, the bread alone plus the word, as though the word were kind of frosting on the cupcake. It's a mutually exclusive alternative, okay? In glory, we live by the word of God alone. Uh, Romans 6.10 is an important text for me here. Um, the death he died once and for he died once and for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. That applies to all of us. In creation, we live by bread. We live in relation, which is simply a synecdoche for me, for the whole ensemble of created realities that sustain our existence. As Christians who have accepted the gospel, we're, we're straddling both those things. The word of forgiveness is the word by which we live. And an important, I mean, obviously we still, we still in this life eat and drink and do all the other material things we need to do. But what the gospel teaches us is that our lives are defined not by the causal chains that have brought us to where we are, which of course are infected by sin and which would lead us to condemnation otherwise, but rather by the call that comes before us. So that and that's already part of our reality, right? Not exclusively as it will be 
in, in glory, but really now. And so it's, it's exploring what does that mean? How does that fact that we, that we anticipate in that way a mode of living that is not determined or constrained by the kinds of zero-sum give-and-take relationships that naturally constitute the lives of material creatures in time and space. We still have that, but there's this other reality that has, that has broken in upon us. And how does that transform the way in which we regard ourselves in this world with respect to one another? That's what's going to happen in the lectures. Looking forward to it. Ian, we want to talk about a few of your books in just a minute. Let our listeners know what you've done. Before we get into the weeds, though, could, could we take a kind of a panoramic look at your scholarly trajectory and just talk a little bit about why have you done the kind of work that you've done? Has there been any strategy you've had in your mind as you've taken on project after project? Or I mean, do you, you finish a book and then you think to yourself, I wonder what needs to be done now, or an editor comes to you and says, hey, how about this? How do you think about your uh, process and procedure as a scholar? I, most of the time, I don't think of the next book until the other last book is done. Um, basically, my work falls into two parts. My first, my first several books were on, I mean, there's my dissertation, which uh, is sort of its own thing. But my first books post that were all on theological anthropology. And I, I think what was driving me through all those books uh, was how does one appropriately talk about human equality before God without undermining human difference because superficially they're at odds with each other. The more you emphasize difference, well, the differences are, you know, some people are smarter than me, some people are not, some people are faster, more faithful, more emotionally intelligent. I mean, you look at differences and you immediately get hierarchies, right? On the other hand, if you look at, if you have, if you took a, think of, you know, what makes us equal before God as some underlying reality, then of course the differences go away. But then of course, you know, when God loves us, God doesn't love some neutral globe in the middle, right? God loves us in our differences, right? So what I was trying to work with in those books was trying to talk, try to figure out how can one speak of a way of thinking about human equality in a way that does not, that makes difference not something that's a threat to that, but actually is integral to it. And for me, the, the concept of, 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 of Jesus' call, as what defines us as human, is not something we possess intrinsically that then becomes in competition with others, but rather with the fact that Jesus claims us as, as brothers and sisters, as human beings, fellow, as, children, as fellow siblings of his and children of God. That's where the equality lies. It's extrinsic, not intrinsic. And I think that's, that's sort of what I try to do in a lot of that, or that theme is, is, is in a lot of the books. My book since then, I've did a creation book, uh, a Christology book, and I'm now working on an eschatology book. Um, uh, all of them are, that's, that's the spread of systematic theology, but it is by far not a systematic theology. It's really three case studies on three, uh, particular features of, of, of each of those doctrines. I suppose what's motivating me in each of those in a different way is the relationship between creator and creature, and particularly how that is, how that um, divide is uh, is mediated and overcome uh, in the person of Jesus. So in all three books, at some in some way, posing me on the one hand wanting to stress as much as possible divine transcendence, but to show that in fact we really don't even understand what divine transcendence is until we see how it's been overcome in the life and ministry of our Lord. You've done work in creation theology, and sometimes when people hear that, they think of uh, debates that often exist when we talk about creation. Um, in your book, From Nothing, you argue that there's something much more important 
than just a debate <laughs> at the heart of the creation debate. Um, what is that, and how might this help encourage the formation of a more robust creation theology as for ministers of the gospel? Yeah. I mean, well, what I want to suggest, I, I, I'm, uh, creation is fundamentally a soteriological doctrine for me, or at least it, it's, it's, it's reflex of, of soteriological concerns. To be saved is, among other things, to have one's life validated against every possible threat. And the only one who can validate one's life against every possible threat, logically speaking, as far as I can see, is a God who creates from nothing. Understanding creation from nothing, um, it's a bit of a deceptive phrase because normally when I say, I created X from Y, Y is describing the stuff I use to create X, right? I create a table from wood. I create bread from flour, water, and yeast or whatever. Whereas when we say God creates the world from nothing, from nothing isn't identifying any, a substance, right? It's actually privative. The point, what it's trying to say is the only thing lying behind creation is God's will that it should be. Uh, and again, that is, uh, it seems to be ingredient to Christian belief about faith in God, uh, because what it means is there is no limit on God's ability to save. Uh, there is no reality out there, no pre-existing matter, certainly no evil force or whatever it is that uh, stands between God and us. And so, um, as I take this from Thomas Aquinas, but um, I mean, Aquinas famously said, you know, uh, although Aquinas believed the world began at a particular point of time. Creation from nothing is really about, not about a historical or scientific claim at all. It's a claim about relationship. And in fact, it would be, it could hold even if the world were eternal. So one thing that, it, that I think is important uh, for a doctrine of creation is to recognize it isn't fundamentally a claim about how things began. It's a claim about how God relates to what is not God. And uh, as, I mean, the creation from nothing, um, it is not explicitly taught in Scripture, but like the Trinity, I think it can be, uh, to use the words of the Westminster Confession, by good and necessary reasons be deduced therefrom, is a, is a conviction that arises in the church end of the second century, pretty much, um, and has been, up until the modern period, pretty much a consensus view. And I, what I want to do in the book is to emphasize that I think it is, notwithstanding certain contemporary worries about what, it, what divine transcendence implies, I think actually it's good news, because what it, again, does is secure the gratuity and the sure and certain hope of, of life eternal. Beeson Divinity School tends to attract people who love to study the Christian tradition, historical theology, church history, among other things, of course. Uh, and we want to tell our listeners a little bit about your book, Creation and Humanity. A bunch of them are teachers at one level or another, and this is a collection of primary sources from the tradition on creation and humanity. Tell them a little bit about it and um, how you went about choosing uh, the primary sources that you put in the volume. Sure. Well, there, there are four sections. Um, God is creator, the creature, which is really theological anthropology because that's mostly what people talked about what God creates. Human beings has been the, have been the major focus of most Christian reflection, evil and sin, and providence. The only person who appears in all four sections is Thomas Aquinas, which I don't think, I wasn't planning that, um, but I don't think it's accidental. There really is, particularly on these subjects, Aquinas is a very subtle uh, and careful thinker. I've already indicated the way in which he, he formulates his thinking about creation, but also his way of thinking about evil, about providence, uh, all very uh, stimulating um, and, uh, I think, um, ways of talking that are uh, expansive, 
and provocative at the same time. Um, otherwise, it's a, it's, a, it's a grab baggy sort of thing. And part of what I was trying to do was show the diversity of the tradition on these things. I mean, so I begin creation, the creation section with Justin Martyr, who, of course, doesn't believe in creation from nothing. He has a platonic view of creation, uh, which he, think, he thinks Plato got it from Moses. But nevertheless, he thinks that Plato basically got it right, that God was using pre-existing stuff. And then I go to Theophilus of Antioch, who's the first person um, who explicitly teaches creation from nothing. We don't really know much about him, of him that he did, <laughs> Bishop of Antioch. Um, but really what I wanted to get is, is a sense that there, these are, that many of these questions are matters of ongoing conversation and contention uh, in, in the tradition. Uh, even ones, I mean, and creation is much less, is much more stable in many ways, certainly than, you know, uh, uh, you know, many of the soteriological you know, atonement, uh, uh, justification, and so forth have been. But I'm wanting to, on the one hand, give a, a sense in each case of some of the major themes of the tradition. So creation as creation from nothing, evil as privation, providence uh, in terms of um, sort of the, you know, the categories of divine preservation, divine accompaniment, divine direction, and so forth. But then also about half of the, uh, of, of the readings in each uh, of the uh, each of the sections, beginning with the early 19th century, as one might expect, shows the kind of dissolution of consensus that one has had in in the Western Church, uh, and sometimes uh, shared by by Eastern colleagues. But I'm being a Protestant. I'm I'm heavily Western in terms of my my reading of these things, and there's been more change here. Designed to show the kinds of lingering questions that have been left by the tradition, which even when I don't agree, as for example with process theology, I do not, with what they, with their solutions, they do identify real problems that need to be addressed. And so the point of the reader is, is, is among other things to exhibit some of these, these crises to understand that even if one doesn't like the positive, what they're saying, what they're seeing, implications that, are, that may be present or at least tendencies in the tradition that they are suspicious of are at least something to be taken note of. And so if one wants to recover a very classical understanding of creation, as I personally do, it has to be done understanding that there have been kind of elisions and presuppositions that have, that have, that have been carried along that need to be recognized and, and countered. So that's what's going on in that book, I think. Hmm. Uh, another book that we want to ask you about is your book um, on the incarnation called The Word Made Flesh. And I was telling you before we got going that I listened to a podcast that you did recently on this book. And it was really moving to me to hear you read uh, a, a short section of it from the end. So I wonder if you can tell our listeners, what are you trying to accomplish in this book? Yeah, what I'm trying to do in this book is to, again, in light of modern critiques um, of cl classical Christology, is the Christology defined at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, uh, which says that Christ is one person in two natures, fully divine and fully human. And the person Christ is, is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. A modern critique uh, that is pretty, uh, I think, not trivial, is that this uh, way of thinking about Jesus, although it affirms in principle his humanity, in practice, the way in which it's often been translated is to make his humanity not really the object of much interest. What you're interested in is the divinity, which even going back to Chalcedon is associated with his miracles and things of that sort. My argument is that, in fact, uh, 
Chalcedon really is the best way to think about Jesus' humanity uh, uh, fully, and that, in fact, uh, it drives us to do that, but the ways in which Chalcedon has often been interpreted have not served that well. Um, one thing that I point out, for example, is that to speak of Jesus' miracles as exhibitions of divinity is a mistake. Uh, Jesus' miracles are works of the Spirit that, as he himself says, his followers will do greater ones. So that isn't evidence of divinity, right? In fact, what I want to emphasize is Jesus' divinity remains invisible because divinity is, in, divinity is inherently invisible. What we see in Jesus is not the divine nature, which is as invisible in Jesus as it is before the, before the incarnation as it is after. What we see is God inhabiting a human life and thereby binding God's destiny to our own, such that if we want to know about God, we have to look at this human being. That is our, I mean, I, I quote Luther here, who has a wonderful uh, line and a letter he gives to one of his colleagues, Georg Spalatin, um, that uh, if you want to know about Jesus, you, where you look is the humanity of Christ. Uh, and it's that, what I call Chalcedonianism without reserve, where we take maximally serious Jesus' humanity, not as sort of a, you know, that which allows him to die so we can reconcile us to God or that which is there, but really what we're interested in is the, is the flashy stuff. No, it's the humanity whether it's in his miracles or in his suffering or in his eating or anything else he's doing, somehow it's there that miraculously God is present in a way that discloses the fullness of deity. Um, not in the sense, again, that we see the invisible infinite nature, which we don't, but discloses what God's heart, God's will for us in the span of 30 years in Palestine. Uh, and, that, and that the challenge of Christology is to, and particularly that classical form, is to understand that God is the most, that the humanity isn't a distraction from the divinity. It's actually where the divinity is disclosed. Ian, Kristen and I always like to conclude our podcast interviews by asking our guests if there's anything that God has been uh, showing or teaching them recently. And we ask this uh, even uh, of our most scholarly guests, so we're I'd like to, to think God is talking to scholarly guests too. So that's <laughs> <Yeah, exactly>. good. <laughs> Me too. So, uh, so we conclude by asking you: Is there something that the Lord has been teaching or showing you recently that we might conclude with by way of edifying our listeners? Yeah. Well, as I said, um, uh, uh, well, you wrote. I don't think I've said it at all, actually. But I'm working on a book on eschatology now, um, and. Part of my call back to Emory, there are a lot of things that were involved there, but one of them was what God told me needed to be done to do that topic well, as a topic, as something, as writing as a very privileged white guy, was to be in a place where, to talk about Christian hope, I was being exposed uh, in a way that I could never be at a place like Cambridge with this most senior professorship in an ancient university, to talking about hope in the context and before folk who, for whom that is a very difficult thing to talk about credibly. And for me, part of what coming back to Emory uh, was and coming back to do theology in this context was being called to hear particularly what the black church uh, has to say on these things. And my colleagues of color at Emory, both uh, when I say colleagues of color, I mean both faculty and students, and the kinds of challenges, not necessarily because I show them chapters of the book, because most of them have better things to do than to read my stuff, but just in the air and in the atmosphere of how does one talk about hope? Because I always have, I hope, with the Holy Spirit in my ears saying, it's very easy to talk about hope cheaply. Mm. How do I talk about hope in a way that is credible to those who need most to have that 
message given to them, realizing it's not my message, but God's message. Um, and I think the, the constant discipline of being, of remi- of being reminded that uh, whatever happens in my head has to be tested against, is this going to be heard as good news where it needs, where the good news is most needed? Uh, that's where I feel like I've been, I am continuing to be schooled. Mm. That's a great word for all of us involved in gospel ministry and a great word on which to conclude. You have been listening to Dr. Ian McFarland. He serves as the Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Theology at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Uh, I'm pleased to say he is with us all week delivering our Reformation Heritage Lectures. Thank you, Dr. McFarland, for this gift of your time this week and for being with us on the show today. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We ask you to pray for us. Do what you can to support our students. We thank you for it, and we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.